Well, good morning. It is a real privilege uh, to be with you here in Grand Rapids. Uh, my second trip out here, once on a, uh, at a general assembly, but uh, I really do appreciate the warm welcome uh, from this past weekend. Uh, and uh, the saints in Temecula greet you. It was wonderful to have the Beckerings uh, as members of our church for a short time uh, before they stopped backsliding and came back. Um, <laughs> but it really has been uh, great. Uh, your pastor is uh, one who is always well spoken of uh, in the denomination and even among our folks for, for various reasons. So we're grateful for the ministry here, uh, not just through Pastor Dale, but also through uh, what this church, Harvest Church, is doing in, in our denomination. And so uh, may God's blessings continue uh, on this church. This morning, I'd like, uh, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 25. I'm going to cheat a little bit. We're going to read part of Isaiah 24, but not read the Revelation portion, so I won't be uh, adding too much extra on you. Isaiah chapter 24 is where we'll begin, and hopefully This microphone and I will continue to get along. It's uh, wanting to creep up the backside of my head here. Isaiah 24, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. May we give our attention to it. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. And therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, and the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, and the noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down, and every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished, and desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when the olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done." And as we continue, if you look to chapter 25, beginning in verse 6. But on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he, swallow, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, 
Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you please pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We do ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the holiday seasons are upon us, um, and sometimes that sounds a little bit like, you know, the Philistines are upon us. It's not always good news. Uh, But the one fast approaching, of course, is Thanksgiving. And when I think of Thanksgiving, I mean, all I can think about is what will be served on Thanksgiving. Uh, Depending on what your family traditions are, I'm sure you have a favorite uh, part of the meal. We always go through this as a family, you know, what's your favorite part of the dinner? Uh, and around our house, uh, for whatever reason, there's a long backstory that no one needs to know, uh, macaroni and cheese is the favorite part of our meal, um, which uh, I normally make. I mean, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that's how it happens, uh, to which my 13-year-old son this year decided he wanted to also make mac and cheese, uh, which conjured up no amount of kind of bitterness in me a little bit. Um, and my other son said, well, you shouldn't make it. It'll never be as good as dad's. And then I felt a lot of pride, both, both sinful reactions to things. But when we think of the holidays, when we think of uh, the parties that we uh, enjoy during these holidays, we normally turn our attention, uh, and rightly, to food. You know, there'll be lots of fattening and wonderful stuff. Um, and if there's not, you know, then you're, you're doing it wrong, right? Um, I mean, have you ever noticed it's very hard to think of joy without also at the same time thinking about food? Um, And it's not just because you're an American and, you know, you're a glutton and all of the other other guilt that we get thrown at us. Um, My wife is Hispanic, and you cannot do anything as a Hispanic family uh, without there being an overabundance of food served. I mean, it does not matter how small the occasion is, the meal that is presented is ridiculous. Um, Our current culture, of course, has programmed us to feel just a little bit ashamed uh, about our holiday feasting. Uh, You will see, I'm sure, in endless news news cycles, uh, strategies for you not to gain, you know, your five to ten pounds over the holiday season. Um, Yet no matter how much advertising is dedicated to guilting us into not celebrating and feasting, we do it anyway, Uh, even if we do it with a bit of a guilty conscience. It just goes naturally. If joy, then food. Well, the world may be fuzzy on feasting, uh, but we as the church can be as well. I mean, we we know that in some sense, joy is to be associated with the faith. But then we wonder, you know, what does holy joy look like? I mean, how how does it manifest itself? What should we be, you know, what should be going through our minds when these sorts of words are spoken? You know, the Bible seems to be, as we have talked about even this weekend, at home with feasting. You know, the, the The garden surely is a a feast for the eyes and for the mouth. You know, when God brings people into the land, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Our Lord comes and His, you know, the accusation that comes against Him is that He's a wine-bibber and a glutton. And the story ends, of course, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the feast of all feasts. So the Bible is not opposed to such things. Um, And I think we understand uh, that it's there somehow, you know, spiritually, whatever we mean by that. but we understand at least this, that the, the, one of the grand benefits of our redemption is eternal life. And I think we, we enjoy that fact, as we should, 
Because we don't want to die, and therefore life eternal sounds good, but I think for many of us, we don't know what to do with the life portion of eternal life. You know, what will that be like, you know, and how are we to enjoy that, or how are we even to imagine it? I don't know about you, when I was a child, I was raised in the church, and we would hear about heaven, and I would hear about, you know, life everlasting, and I would lay in my bed, and I remember this distinctly, and I would think, like, what does it mean to live forever? And you start thinking about, okay, you know, this much time goes by, and this much time, and you keep doing enough of those this much times, and then your mind kind of scrambles, you know, and it's just like it's too much, you know, to take in. Um, we aren't sure oftentimes, again, what it will mean to live forever. Is it really, you know, are we going to just be, you know, eternally in the choir? Um, which for some of you, that might sound like really good news. Uh, if you sing like my family, that doesn't sound like that great of news, but it could, uh, could be fun. Um, you know, we, we know there are streets of gold that are somehow at the same time see-through. Uh, we know that we will be worshiping God. Um, I, I recently received a track um, from uh, the Watchtower Society while sitting in my car. I mean, they approached me in my car, which I thought was a... Getting bolder as time goes on. Uh, but the tract had, uh, you know, a picture of Jesus on the front uh, with a well-manicured beard uh, and flowing hair uh, in heaven. But what was behind him in the scene was just utter nothingness. You know, I think a lot of times when we think of the life portion of eternal life, we have nothing to fill in the blank. Like, what is it that life will be about in that place? You know, Jesus was raised to give us life, but what will, it, uh, what will that life entail? I think we know, again, at another level, theologically speaking, God is our great reward. And there's no doubt that that is true, that God will be the greatest part of the new creation. It will be all of our favorite part. You know, when we sit down at the table, discuss what was your favorite part of the day, you know, surely God and being in the presence of God uh, will be the sum and substance of it. But how are we to comprehend it? I mean, how are we to comprehend the goodness of what life eternal uh, will be like? I mean, for many of you as parents, maybe you remember the day that you brought that first child home. Um, if you're a second child, sorry, we just didn't feel the same about, you know, <laughs> as you can tell from the photo album, we did not feel the same about um, but I remember just being overwhelmed with love for this child, you know, a child that I just met. We had no backstory. Uh, but there was this deep set, you know, and trying to describe that to somebody is near to impossible, right? To try to, you know, pass on what that means to someone who hasn't had the same experience. Well, in the same way, Scripture wants to tell us about the goodness of eternal life, uh, and yet knowing that we can't fully comprehend all the goodness that it will entail. Uh, and yet the Scripture is not ashamed to try to entice us and tempt us to the new creation by holding before us the glory of heaven as a feast, a feast of food and joy and friendship and communion and wine, that it is not beneath God to come to you and say, if you want to know what heaven's like, Think of the good things in this life and then come, you know, be invited into my kingdom for those things will be there and more still. He tempts us to heaven this way and he calls it good. And so I want us to look this morning in Isaiah 25 or 24 and 25 and look at our life to come 
under the heading of three feasts. Three feasts. And the first one I want us to see is this feast set for a curse in Isaiah chapter 24. A feast set for the curse. As you, we began that chapter, you can't help but hear the words, therefore a curse devours the earth in verse 6, and its inhabitants suffer their guilt. Notice the curse is coming and it's eating something. Uh, you know, it's eating the earth and its inhabitants. The Lord is coming to judge the guilty in this text, and the picture that's given is the curse with mouth wide open feasting on all of the guilty. And you'll notice in the text, curse uh, is not a picky eater. Uh, you might have a child. I have a child that just does not do greens, and he's not small anymore. Uh, he was the last child. The first ones ate their greens because, you know, we were good parents then. Um, and this one just wore us down. So uh, he hasn't had a green bean in the entirety of his life. Um, you know, some of your children might be picky eaters. You might have food allergies, so there are certain things you can't partake of. Uh, but uh, curse, uh, it is not picky. Uh, it has no allergies. It is uh, free and full in what it will partake of. And you'll see that, you'll notice in verse 2, as it shall be with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with the master, the maid, the mistress, and it goes on. No one is left out. According to their rank or station, the curse comes and devours all of them. He's no respecter of persons. Uh, and you'll notice here, it's, you know, it's not just the big banks that get eaten, but it's also those who are in debt. You know, it's not just the creditors, uh, but it's also, you know, the debtors. It's not just the Democrats, it's also the Republicans. Everyone is taken in by the curse. No one is left out of its gaze, and no one escapes, you know, its gaping uh, maw. Not only is curse not a picky eater, you'll notice that curse and death are never full. Uh, we see in these verses that death never gets satisfied. The curse never gets satisfied. It never, you know, slides its chair back from the table and says, I'm, I'm full, no more for me. You know, Proverbs tell us, you know, one of the things on the earth that never says enough is death. And God in this text has given the world over to this curse, a curse that is not picky and it's eating, it never gets full, it's never satisfied. And then God tells us why this is happening. And you'll notice in verse 5, it says, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours. Notice this, this broken everlasting covenant, these transgressed laws, these violated statutes, all the inhabitants in the text are considered guilty for having participated in these sorts of activities. And you'll notice the poor earth lies defiled and messed up because of who dwells on it. <laughs> you know, Romans 8 tells us this, right? The earth is groaning. You know, the earth is frustrated, waiting for its day of redemption because what we have done to it in our rebellion against God, all have sinned, as the Bible tells us. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have broken His laws. And we know that. I mean, that's church talk. We, we come here every week. We hear about sin. And, but, I mean, consider, you know, have you broken His statutes? Have you violated his holy law? I mean, all he says is that you need to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then others like yourself. You know, don't worry about anything. Be anxious for nothing. 
but in everything, in prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. Consider everybody better than yourself. I mean, how are you doing with all those things? You know, not just this one time when I did this one thing way back when, that's when, you know, sin was taking place. The Bible makes plain these sorts of things, these sorts of daily activities are the things that have God so frustrated in His righteousness that He will come and devour the earth at the end of the age because of them. Because of all this, God will judge and the cursed will come feasting on humanity. Well, again, curses, Bible talk, we, we know it's in there and we know it's bad. Uh, but notice the text puts the curse in street clothes and shows us what it means by it. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourine is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. You know, the party is over. It was fun while it lasted, but it ain't no fun no more. You know, what is the curse? You know, the wine cellar gets hit, uh, and, you know, the party ends, and the music gets stopped. We lived uh, as missionaries for a couple of years in Eastern Europe in the nation of Slovakia, uh, which, uh, you know, during the Velvet Revolution had ended its time of communism, but it was very slow and kind of coming out of some of the mindsets. And so I would speak with some of the older gentlemen there, uh, and they would tell me about their former employment. You know, it was a ball bearing factory, uh, was kind of the main employer in this particular city. And they said, yeah, you know, we would make ball bearings, and then they would take them, and they would ship them to the city two hours away where they would melt them down, and then they would ship them back to us, and then we'd make them again, you know, so we all stayed in business. Uh, and so I said, you know, how did you feel about a job where you knew you were making ball bearings that were just going to get melted down and sent back so you could make them again? And they said, oh, I know, it was hard. So well, how'd you get through it? And he looked at me dead serious. He said, Vodka. <laughs> um, well, in the pain of this text, there won't even be the wine to numb or dull the agony that's being caused because of what the curse is doing. I mean, the curse in its uh, uh, real life kind of uh, 3D, uh, uh, in your living room reality is simply this. It's that which robs your life of joy. You know, the one that, it's that which turns down the stereo and silences the laughter and ruins the party. You know, so think of that. What in your life has robbed you of joy? That is the curse, you know, nibbling away at your existence. And of course, whether it be disease or divorce or just family discord, all of those are born out of the curse that comes to us through sin. And the final bite that the curse will take, of course, is death. And so the first thing we see in the text is that there is a feast set for the curse. And then you'll notice in verse 6 of chapter 25, there's a feast set for all the people. You know, the prophets do this. It's very strange, but there's this rapid turn of events in the text from judgment to celebration, from a famine to a feast. The, you know, the cupboards were bare. So what do you do now when the cupboards are fully stocked? And according to the text, is the appropriate response is you throw a party, you know. 
which really is what thanksgiving is in some sense. When God wants to talk about the joy he brings, notice the language he uses. First, he sets a table, and on that table there's an abundance of food and wine, and it's the best of food and wine. You know, it's the abundant and best. Where there was no wine in the text, where the cupboards were bare, now there is. And you'll notice in the text, it says there's a feast set for all the peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. You know, it's well-aged. There's no need to hurry up and tap into the new vintage. They They can let it rest a while. You know, they can let the tannin soften because we have old wine in the cellar in such abundance that there's time to get to the other stuff. It's a feast of fat things full of marrow. You know, there's no diet saying skip the fat. These are rich foods. And in Scripture, unlike our own culture, you know, fat is an image of human life and flourishing. You know, it's something that, you know, if fat, then good. You know, happy things are happening. It's something that God desires for us. You know, fat shows that you have enough and even more than enough. You know, it is a place of blessing and abundance. It's the opposite of lack and dryness, you know, the the icy, rattling bones of death. If you've ever seen someone, you know, transition in this life from health uh, into, you know, the miseries of disease and death, you know, and pastorally, one of those things you do is, you know, you spend some time with people on their deathbed. And I have sat with men who were big men, you know, large men uh, that uh, had, you know, uh, real jobs, and they carried, you know, heavy things around, and there they lay, you know, 140 pounds, paper thin, their skin is, you know, taut, because you're nearing, clo- you know, you're coming closer and closer to the place that the curse takes us, which is death, and the opposite of that is, you know, fullness of life, you know, fatness, uh, where, where there's uh, vitality and abundance, uh, 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 you know, fat equals life and joy in the Scriptures. And no matter what our culture says negatively about fat, no matter how much bad press it gets, at some level we all still get this, right? Nobody wants a skinny Santa Claus. Nobody. I mean, nobody's favorite food, if you're going to ask them, no one's going to say celery, Right? Uh, and if you do eat celery, what do you do? You, you smother it in fat, right? Well, I'm going to put peanut butter on it, or I'm going to dip it in ranch dressing. I'll, I'll put some fat all over it so that it's edible. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's a holding card. It's a piece of cardboard for some other thing that's pretty good. Um, but at this feast that God sets for his people, the animals are fattened up, the aged wine is pouring And our mouths are wide open, imbibing the best of all without limits. I mean, that is the glorious picture of the the new creation that he gives. But the question is, what causes this celebration? I mean, how do you go from chapter 24, where the curse is there devouring all men, to all of a sudden, hey, we're on the mountain and there's this party happening and the best wine is there and the good food is there and everyone is enjoying uh, it with laughter and camaraderie. Well, it comes to pass through this third feast. You'll notice there's a feast set for God himself. In verses 7 and 8, it tells us, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast for all the people. Notice death comes eating. And then there's a table set for us, we're, and we're eating, and then God comes, and He's eating in this text. 
There's this veil, he says, that's covering the nation. And as you hear those words, again, they're a bit misty to us. You know, it's the same word. It can be translated shroud or, or, or shadow. But, you know, you should think of it like a mourner's veil at a funeral. Uh, and we know that that's the, the gist of what uh, Isaiah is saying because we're informed of the consequences in verse 8. Once he eats the veil, you notice he wipes away tears from their eyes. He takes away their reproach, the things that their shame have caused them. All of those are removed. So that veil that he's eating are those things that have caused sorrow in this life. The cursed has cast a long shadow. And that shadow does fall on every part of our lives. And it does cause tears as we suffer and watch others that we love suffer. It does cause tears as we do things that cause suffering. And we bear the shame that comes with that. The things like disease and lack, turmoil and broken relationships, sins that cling to us, and the harm that those sins have caused ourselves and others. You know, the harm that's been done to you by people who shouldn't have done it, who should have loved you instead, who should have done good to you, the shame you feel because of it, the loss you've experienced. All of those things are on the table when God comes eating. And in verse 8, you'll notice there's a feast of death. He will swallow up death forever. First he eats sorrow, and then he eats death. I mean, the curse ends as its shadow extends, and the final place that it darkens our lives is at death's door. And up to this point in human history, death has had an amazing success rate. As George, George Bernard Shaw wrote, do not try to live forever. You will not succeed. <laughs> you know, death has been running all over us as human beings. You know, spiking the ball, dancing in the end zone, the score is not close. It's been a rout, and death is winning. But then God sits down for this meal at his feast. And he serves himself a heaping plateful of death. And how does that taste? I mean, think of your own life. How does it taste? That is what God tasted in Christ on the cross, and even more so, that which we can't even explain at this point. We have not experienced the taste of my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus ate the curse. He drank the wine of God's wrath down to its bitter dregs. But of course, the story doesn't end on the cross. It ends in resurrection. The great eater death is swallowed up. He is eaten by a resurrection, which means this feast, the feast that we talk about in chapter 25, where we will sit down and enjoy all these things, it could not have happened first without Good Friday. I mean, the covenant really was broken. The law really has been broken. God really does care about sin. He despises it. It is against His nature. He hates the corruption that it causes, the pain that, uh, that it inflicts, but He hates it because of who He is as well. It is distasteful to Him in every way, shape, or form. And He was angry about it. But our God, instead of remaining distant and judging, He swallowed up the enemy that had been taking the, uh, by taking the judgment for our sin upon himself as he hung on that cross, eating the curse that we might be cleansed. 
as the author of Hebrews tells us, he suffered death. Notice why. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It means that this feast can't happen without Good Friday, but it also means this feast cannot happen without Easter as well. For in order for death to be conquered, yes, the curse had to be born, but the grave had to be overcome. And Jesus did indeed step forth. I mean, when does this party start? Notice, you've heard some of these verses before. There's a party that you're invited to, that God has set a table for you to attend. But the question is, when does it happen? Notice Paul quotes our text in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. I mean, the feast, this ultimate feast, starts at the end of history, at our resurrection from the dead. I mean, presently, we still all face death. But because of the resurrection of this one man, Jesus Christ, we will rise as well. And we know who to call upon at the time of our death. And just as the grave couldn't hold him, it will not be able to hold us either. Uh, you know, death is still a bully, but it's a bully who's been defeated, right? You know, uh, when I was about six years old, uh, I had my first encounter with Richard, uh, a young man who I still have uh, distaste for many, many years later. Uh, and Richard and my's first encounter ended with me at the bottom of a creek and him uh, standing above it laughing uh, at what he had done. Uh, he beat me up many times coming home from school, and uh, I was fairly intimidated by him. He was a couple years older than me, uh, and it got real old real fast, so I would take all kinds of alternate routes home. Well, that all ended one weekend when my older cousins came up uh, from the Los Angeles area to where we were living, and me and uh, my cousins were all out playing, and they had gone inside for a moment. Richard, not knowing they were there, came by, uh, and he started picking on me. Uh, and when my older cousin saw it, he watched from behind a fence for a while, and then finally he came over, said something to Richard. Richard replied uh, in a bit of a smart aleck manner, and then my cousin decided that uh, this was the time for Richard to get his comeuppance. Uh, and he hit him pretty hard uh, to where Richard folded over and fell on the ground, and he was wincing, but he was wincing so hard it looked like he was smiling, to which my cousin took great offense. Uh, and so he continued to beat him up. Uh, now, while, you know, the parents came in and said we shouldn't have done that, I could not have been happier about how things transpired. Um, and I knew from that moment on, that while Richard could still beat me up anytime he wanted, that, that problem was definitely solved once and for all, because I had a friend who was bigger than Richard and could conquer him anytime, you know, it required. And death is that same, uh, in that same way, that is our reality with death, that while it still is an enemy, no doubt, and while it still causes us great pain, and while tears are still real because of it, that we have one presently who has already defeated death, and we can call on him in our time of need, and he will be victorious on our behalf. And so while we wait for this feast day to fully start, we know that we will rise to enter that feast even now. The everlasting life that we are awaiting, according to this text, is a life that has been won for us, and it is a life, you'll notice, of embodied joy. And because of that, 
we can say this, that feast, while it's happening later, it can begin presently. You can begin to experience and live in the joy of this text presently because you know that the end of the story is already written and secured in Christ your Lord. And that is why we will come to feast even today. And the reason we can come to this table today and feast is because God ate our enemies. And after you drink this wine and you eat this bread, you will go home and your problems will still exist. The curse will still be opening wide, seeking to swallow you. But you can still come to this table knowing that every problem and every pain that still lingers is not the whole story. The story ends, your story ends, no matter what part you're in the midst of right now, your story ends with a resurrection unto a feast and a celebration with the great king. And because you know that, you can sing today. You can begin rejoicing today. You can come to this table and drink wine today because Jesus, by winning, you have already won. Death has already been defeated. You know, we can cry scoreboard anytime we want and know how the end of the game uh, uh, unfolds. This is why we come to this table. We come to this table today to eat death in order to laugh at death, to tell it, uh, to put it in its rightful place that it will never conquer us again because of the resurrection of our Lord. And the day He comes for us, the stronger one, our Lord Jesus Christ, will meet us at death's door and lead us to a feast, stepping on the neck of the one who sought to conquer us. Think of that today. I mean, think of it as you come to feast today. Death will swallow us all. But God has swallowed death. death. And all who trust in Him, they will taste joy forevermore. And our forever, the forever that God's talking about is the joy of a feast, a feast without calorie counts, a feast without health restrictions, a feast without addictions, without family feuds, without discord, without having to apologize the next day for something you've done. A feast with no mess to clean up. A feast without work the next day. A feast where nobody's missing from the table this year. That is the joy of the resurrection. And Christ is risen indeed. So may we come today and taste and see that the Lord is good by feasting on Him and in so doing, getting a foretaste of all that is to come. And as you experience that, to allow yourself little by little to experience those moments in this life knowing that those have been secured for you and will be lasting in the life to come because of what God has done on your behalf. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. What else can we do but say thank you, Lord, that you would send your Son for sinners like us, not those who sinned long ago, but Lord, those who are, have sinned and are sinning and will sin, and yet your love for us is not diminished because of what your Son bore on our behalf on the cross. Lord God, we thank you that you were willing 
to taste death so that we will never have to taste it in its fullness. And I would ask, Lord God, for these, your people, that you would grant them the grace to find joy even in the midst of this life, even in the midst of sufferings, knowing that joy is ultimate and suffering will be passing, that the enemy has been defeated, and that the good news is good indeed. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.